Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and my usual co-host, Thomas Fry, was not able to join me this evening. But Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating them to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. I just wrapped a solo interview with Dr. Leah Houston, who is building a decentralized system for managing patient information and doctor information in healthcare. And one of the things that was very interesting about this is that we've actually covered the topic a few times on the podcast. We interviewed the economist Irene Ng, who's the CEO of DataSwift, and they're doing something similar. And then we interviewed uh, Radhika Iyengar, who's doing a, a similar kind of thing with the blockchain. But both of those companies, as I understand it, and you'll have to listen to the interviews to verify this because I'm speaking off the cuff, but I believe that they were looking at empowering patients. They wanted to start with patients and give patients a way of controlling their own data. What separates Leah from those is that she's starting with doctors first. And she made the point that doing it with patients is actually fairly complicated because the doctors are the ones that generate most of the data. They sign your birth certificate when you're born and they sign your death, death certificate when you die. And at almost inter every intermediate point when you interface with the medical system, a doctor is the one who's signing the forms and doing those things. And the doctors also have to log into the existing legacy system. So she made a pretty compelling case for starting with doctors first. And her her system, HPEC, has actually gotten a lot more physicians signed on than I thought. And there's a lot more enthusiasm in the physician community than I had anticipated. I'm glad to see that she's she's carrying this project forward. I'm glad to see all that she's accomplished with it. And I have high hopes that it will be possible for HPEC or a similar sort of decentralized system to really, really change healthcare for the better and to dr drastically lower healthcare costs, while at the same time giving patients and doctors more privacy, more autonomy, more sovereignty in the process. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Leah Houston. Dr. Leah Houston, MD practiced emergency medicine across the U.S. for nearly 10 years before becoming an entrepreneur in the physician autonomy and digital privacy space. She experienced the administrative burden of the onboarding and credentialing process firsthand, and that experience led her to start HPEC, a digital identity and credential data wallet for practicing physicians. The HPEC wallet is a decentralized application now available on the app and Google Play stores that makes the physician the primary source of ownership and control of their professional credentials and their data. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Leah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on. So I'm an emergency physician. And after practicing medicine across the United States for uh, nearly 10 years, feeling the friction, the frustrations, and feeling like I was only minimally serving my patients in the way that I thought I was going to, um, I decided to fix it. And so um, I started a company that is aimed at restoring autonomy uh, and privacy to the doctor-patient relationship. And that's autonomy for both physicians and the patients that they care for. 
Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about what the problem was? Uh, I, I think most people who aren't steeped in this wouldn't think that doctors have a huge issue with autonomy. I mean, they're, they're fairly autonomous, right? They run their own practices. So what, what was this big problem that you set out to solve? Well, most physicians don't run their own practices. Most physicians are employed. Um, and most physicians have incentives from their employers and if it's not their employers, it's the other so-called payers. Uh, some people know those payers to be insurance companies. Um, but you know, between prior authorizations that force doctors to choose different therapies that are not their their first choice, or force doctors to sign you know stacks of paperwork to get their patients appropriate care. Um, and their employers trying to get them to see more patients than is safe to see in, in periods of time or work with understaffed situations or um, <clears throat> the like. Uh, you know, this, this lie that doctors have a say and that doctors are autonomous and that doctors have freedom and choice um, is a lie that's perpetuated by what many call the medical industrial complex. Okay, so you're saying that there's this illusion that doctors have all this sovereignty in, in how they, uh, which patients they see and in how they choose to treat those patients. And yet there's actually incentives in place, there's paperwork in place, there's all these structures in place that force them into these channels that they otherwise wouldn't choose. And you're setting out, that's the problem you're setting out to solve. Correct. And tell us a little bit about the solution that you have arrived at. So when we think about how medicine has changed, you know, I actually uh, completed residency in 2012 and started residency in 2009. Now, 2009 was the year that the High Tech Act was finalized. And the High Tech Act is a piece of legislation that essentially governed how we store and share electronic health information. So we've all heard of HIPAA. That was 1996, a little more than 10 years later, 2009 was high tech. Um, and high tech was heavily influenced, not only by electronic health records companies, but by insurance companies. And they turned what used to be uh, what we document as doctors in order to communicate and record what happened, not only for the patient to know what happened to themselves, not only to communicate between specialists when we have to coordinate patient care, but also for ourselves so that we can have a record of what happened so that if we need to understand what to do next and things like that, we, you know, we have that documented. So that used to be the medical record. This private piece of documentation that was created by the physician um, about the patient uh, in order to optimize patient care, period. Uh, now, when third party payers came into the mix and became commonplace, and this was really in the 90s, it became common. Um, they started incentivizing employers to purchase insurance for their employees, and they started making regulations around it. Like if you have X number of employees or more, you have to purchase this product um, or else you're not allowed to run a business, essentially. Right. And so because of that, now all of a sudden the record started becoming a billing tool. 
So doctors used to have to submit the record to the billing company and the billing company would look at the record and decide, but still it was a private record that was owned by the doctor on their private shelf in their private office because we didn't have any electronic form of communication. I mean, computers were just kind of, you know, it wasn't until 2000 that 50% of households had the internet in, in the United States. So before that, even less, you know? Right. So this is the era that we're talking about. We're talking about the birth of digital communication. This is the era that we've lived in. And so um, now with the High Tech Act, they've turned the electronic health record essentially into a billing tool. And so we as physicians, instead of sitting in the room, getting the proper information and uh, critically thinking about the problem and documenting our thought process and making decisions with our patient in mind and with our patients understanding and communicating with them, we're spending the majority of our time clicking boxes so that we can be paid for the services that we're rendering. Um, and this has call, caused <clears throat> um, what uh, Shoshana Zuboff coined the term uh, surveillance capitalism. So they're surveilling the doctor-patient behavior and they're capitalizing on the pain and suffering of our patients. That sounds fairly awful. Um, and then what are your proposed solutions for it? HPEC, uh, talk to us about the technology you're you're hoping to use to solve this problem so um since the birth of health records there have been advocates for patients pounding the pavement saying patients should have access to this information patients should own this information this information should be private and so they're like oh don't worry we'll anonymize it but the problem is with anonymization, if you dig deeply enough, you know, uh, if you know my age and where I live and basically my height and my weight, and you know that I have one or two diseases and you collect a data set for people in my neighborhood or in my area, um, you could probably figure out who I am, scale me down to like 10 to 20 different patients and figure it out based on some of my social history and my health record, right? And for people with rare diseases, it's even worse. They can be singled out immediately. So this false lie of anonymization um, is what they told the public uh, that they would be doing in order to prevent this. Um, and so we kind of, the EHR dream and promise is now a nightmare. And so to answer your question, we're creating direct peer-to-peer -peer communication systems for doctors and patients that will allow us to leverage the power of being able to document things digitally uh, while also restoring privacy and trust to the doctor-patient relationship. Go ahead. And so, you know, we're using specifically a technology called decentralized identity. Okay. And this is open standards-based technology that's developed by uh, the World Wide Web Consortium and the Decentralized Identity Foundation. So uh, there's a bunch of brilliant technologists, uh, the same people who developed our identity systems that allow us to log into the banks um, <clears throat> are building the new identity systems of the future that allow for more privacy preserving um, identity authentication. And so when we think about the electronic health record, uh, I have to log in. And with my login and my 
uh, Medicare, Medicaid numbers, my NPI number. These are all numbers that are attached to me and my identity as a doctor. And they're the, they're the things that signal the EMR that I have certain privileges. I have privileges to deliver a baby and sew lacerations and perform intubations and all these things. Whereas, you know, a practitioner next to me might have other privileges, like a neurosurgeon would have different privileges. And so that allows us to order these expensive medications and make sure patients can get admitted to the hospital and book the operating room and all these things. Uh, but it also allows us to document information about you as the patient. Now, right now, as a physician community, we have no choice. Because we're employed, because we're being paid by these third-party systems, we have no choice but to use the systems that exist and to put your private, personal, protected health information into these systems that unfortunately are not serving us. And so through decentralized identity, we can create peer-to-peer -peer networks where instead of me putting your information in a centralized system where they now own and control your information, I can issue you directly your information and you can own it, store it, keep it in your wallet and choose whether or not you want to share it and with whom. That's very interesting. So it sounds like partly because these doctors are employed and they work with these third parties, they're locked into the software that the third parties demand that they use. So could the problem also be fixed just by having better privacy preserving tools among the third parties and for just the default to be better? Uh, and then I also want to know whether or not the third parties are going to, you know, let HPEC succeed if they might have incentives against that. But you, you can take those in however order you like. Right. So um, privacy by design mm -hmm. needs and uh, these companies had every opportunity to be thoughtful, but they chose to be greedy. And they chose to build the systems in a way that allows them to keep own control and hoard all this patient information where they, you know, you have to sign this HIPAA form or else you don't get care. And the HIPAA form basically says, you can do whatever you want with my data and I have no rights and no say in my, I'm having a heart attack. So <laughs> what else am I gonna do? It's not it's really coercion, uh -huh. you know, so could these systems all of a sudden say kumbaya, we made a mistake, let's all get together and try to find ways to make this better? Sure, they've been afforded many opportunities to do that. And unfortunately, the US government has been forced to step in. And so they actually implemented the 21st Century Cures Act, which was um, part of the ACA. And if you look at item 4003 and 4004 of the 21st Century Cures Act, you see um, rules around information blocking and interoperability that basically say, okay, you companies are no longer allowed to block this information from patients. They're allowed to now get their data. Um, and if you block them, we're gonna fine you. And I think it's, I'm not sure of the number, but I think it's around $25,000 per day per event. Oh, okay. Not on that one, so don't quote me. Um, but you know, essentially, they're saying, "Okay, you guys, the gig is up. You know what you're doing isn't cool. It's not okay." Um, and so, I personally believe, and this is, I have a bias because I'm a physician and because I took the Hippocratic Oath along with my colleagues. I personally believe that this is part of our Hippocratic Oath: um, protecting our patients' data and protecting their privacy 
um, is something that now we need to digitize and we need to build design and adopt the tools that protect their privacy. And so if somebody comes up with a tool that's better than this, uh, I'll start adopting that. Well, fantastic. So you said that it's based on a decentralized identity. So is it anonymized by default? How, how is it different from anonymization? Like walk us through the privacy guarantees that you get as a result of this. So um, decentralized identity allows for individuals to um, store metadata about themselves and essentially use something called zero knowledge proofs that allows you to just say, um, basically prove that you are who you say you are in whatever way that person is requesting that information without giving them all of your information at once. You know, so <clears throat> for example, you're picking up a prescription at the pharmacy, you just need to, they just need to know that you are who you say you are. They don't need to know, you know, everything about you. Um, and same thing, you know, so for example, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a, a hard, a use case that makes sense. I mean, people frequently use the, you know, the drinking, uh, 21 years old to drink, you know, all you need to know is the person is 21 years old. You don't need to know their date of birth. You don't need to know where they live. You don't need to know their driver's license number. And unfortunately today we have to give somebody all of that information to prove that we can purchase alcohol. And in the same way in healthcare, patients shouldn't have to give all of their information just to be able to get an annual checkup or a prescription. Okay. So it's putting the sovereignty back in the hands of the patients and, and, and the doctors and, and considering sacrosanct that relationship and making it more difficult for a third party to butt in and coerce them in various different ways. Are there any, so what, what would be the reason for the third party allowing the adoption of this thing? Is it just that the laws are such that they have no choice, they can't stop it? Is that kind of the situation or is there some reason they would benefit too? So before I, I answer that one, I'd like to first ask you a question. What's the purpose of the third party? Uh, to make things more difficult and expensive. So why do we care what they think? <laughs> well, I don't, but I thought, I mean, it's often easier if you can get them on board too, if, if it's uh, to their best advantage, to, in their best interest as well. But ultimately, I don't care as much what they right, think. But I mean, why is it better to get them on board as well if they're not serving us and all they do is cause friction and pain and suffering? So it sounds like they, there's just not that much they'll be able to do uh, to, to stop this technology from rolling out. Well, I want to, you know, I don't want to sound like such an anarchist. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the 21st Century Cures Act, that's a government regulation that's putting pressure on these systems to comply. Um, and legally, there are very few restrictions on the doctor-patient relationship. As long as I have a license to practice medicine, and as long as I'm not breaking any other laws, I'm allowed to practice medicine, serve my patients and document things in whatever way I want. The way I get more regulated as a doctor is if I'm taking a payment from a third party or from Medicare and Medicaid, and then I have to follow their rules. Um, and you know, as I mentioned, the government's actually pushing for more privacy preserving patient-centered systems. And so that's, I'm very happy with. I just hope that, you know, they comply rather than do what they've done in the past, like, for example, with the price transparency rules, rather than properly complying with these rules, some systems put up a bunch of dirty data that was confusing 
And so they were were in compliance, knowing fairly fair, you know, well that nobody was going to understand it. And some just didn't comply and said, "Fine, find me. I don't care." And they just paid a hundred thousand dollars every quarter or whatever it is, because it's a drop in the bucket compared to the billions of dollars they make off of patient, you know, care. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com Go to the contact page and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. So how far have you gotten in rolling this out? Are are you testing it in clinics yet, or is it still in the whiteboarding phase? So I want to be really clear that this is a very, very complex thing to solve, and um, you know, we first, in order for this to work, we first have to solve for physician identity. And so just like patients have data about themselves, we also, as doctors, as I mentioned, have data. We have NPI numbers and P10 numbers and DEA numbers and, you know, medical license numbers and all these pieces of data about us that give us permission to practice medicine and do our trade. And so, in order to build this future system where doctors can issue patients their authentic data and where doctors can communicate directly, securely, and privately, and we can log into systems that are compliant with these standards and with these regulations and with these, frankly, cultural and social trends towards data privacy, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can have our our digital identities first and we can store our own information or our own credentials and authenticate information about ourselves so that we can build this future. So just to be clear, HPEC is a company. Uh, it stands for the Humanitarian Physicians Empowerment Community. We are a community of physicians who want to build and create privacy preserving systems for our patients and we want to build our own referral networks. Um, you know, we as a company and organization are building identity systems for doctors first so that we later can plug into patient systems. Okay. So uh, why is it so important for the, to start with the doctors and the physician identity? Well, it's, it seems like that wouldn't be such a major problem. Uh, I mean, just standing outside the system. Well, how do we log in if we don't know who we are yet? I assume with the username and password. Right, but that's only with centralized systems that give you that username and password, that control all of your data and information, that control your right to work, your right to authenticate yourself, your right to issue patient data. So if we're working in a distributed system, in a decentralized system, where we're creating peer-to-peer networks of authentication, where we don't have third parties verifying and authenticating, um, how do we, I, I, you know, how do we verify identity then? Well, with the blockchain, you just have, uh, you have addresses and there's a, a KYC process. Um, although I suppose a lot of that's through centralized entities as well. So uh, yeah, I, I see, I see how that would be an issue. So, I mean, are, are you, 
taking physician names and giving them unique identifiers? How, how does that part work? No, I mean, the US government has already issued doctors one credential, one form of identifying information, and that's the MPI number. I see. Um, after you finish a residency program in the United States, um, or when you actually, when you start a residency program in the United States, you get issued an uh, NPI number. All practitioners do. It's not just physicians. Um, and so that's tied to you. And before you're allowed to do that, I mean, in order to get into a residency program, you need to have a medical degree and all this and, and all these things. So um, <clears throat> we use the MPI number along with verifying your identity with a third party um, to give you a decentralized identity that you can then take with you and collect any other verifiable information into your wallet that you can authenticate your DEA number, your medical license numbers, things of that nature. Um, and then with this tool, you can then have employment mobility. You can log into um, telemedicine systems. You can log into decentralized EMR systems. You can move freely. You can quickly verify you are who you say you are. And for physicians who are listening to this, um, you know, we all know that it takes four to six months on average to credential for a job. You, um, you know, you get hired, they say, welcome aboard, can't wait till you start. And you don't start tomorrow, you don't even start in two weeks. You start in four to six months after they've gone through and manually checked every credential. And oh, interestingly, wow. it has two years, yeah. I did not know it took that long. So, so they actually go, they comb through your records and they make sure that you didn't falsify any of your documents or, or anything like that? Yep. Wow. Correct. And it takes six months. That's incredible. Sometimes longer. I mean, there's some places that can do rapid credentialing in a couple of months if they're really desperate. Um, but it's really a very manual friction filled process. Why does it take so long? Is this also the nefarious third parties doing or is it just physicians? You, they, they've got to be good. And so you've just got to check everything in a way you don't for a programmer. Correct. You know, you don't want to catch me if you can situation. You don't want somebody going to the old <laughs> brain surgery if they're not supposed to be. Right, exactly. Uh, okay, that's that's really remarkable. Okay, so I, I had no idea there was so much friction in the process, but I could see how speeding that up really dramatically would grease the skids and make everything much easier. So I assume that uh, with HPEC, the, the doctor's able to put these things in and, and they're able to verify themselves or or it's, it's checked somehow, but then once it's in, it's in and it's good, right? And from that point on, it's just ZK proofs to show that you have this information without actually revealing it. Is that right? Yeah, well, in the same way that you have your driver's license mm -hmm. and you hold it and people can do certain things to make sure it's real, um, in the same way, you now have a digital identity that you own, you control, you can authenticate who you are and it goes with you. How many physicians do you have on this right now? Um, last I checked a little over 800. Oh, that's not too bad. Okay. And then how, how rapidly is that growing? Um, we actually paused, um, you know, some onboarding because we saw some, some bugs that we're fixing. So we stopped inviting for now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's basically as soon as we start the invite process, you know, 150 or so a month. Oh, that's actually pretty quick. Yeah, we started onboarding people like uh, late January, early February. 
Okay. So you're, you're growing pretty fast. And how long does it take the doctors to get into the system? The onboarding process is around five to seven minutes, depending on whether or not you have your ID handy or not. Um, but the initial onboarding is only a few minutes, email, name, da, da, da. But to get into the system, um, and when I say the system, we have a social network in there um, for oh. doctors to kind of collaborate, communicate. Uh, and just through the onboarding process, like whatever state you're in, you get into that state group, whatever specialty in, you get in that specialty group. So it's, uh, it's, we don't have a space like this currently. We have a bunch of Facebook groups, um, but nothing decentralized, no space that's censorship free. I see. That's, that's very remarkable. And what's the feedback you've gotten so far? Are the doctors liking it? Are they finding that it's, you know, living up to its promise? Everybody loves it. I think that they it was more like Facebook, but we have to remember Facebook is, you know, almost 20 years old now and they're multi-billion dollar company. So it's not going to be that good, at least not yet. Um, you know, but I see. yeah, we're getting there. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five star rating on Apple podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. And then what are the, the next steps for, for the project? I mean, is it just fixing these low-level bugs or are you going to be onboarding patients soon? Well, another reason we pause is because we are doing a pilot project with an academic medical center where we're going to be using our credential issuing system to issue credentials to graduating residents. And we actually got approved for our second pilot project last week. So um, we're kind of focusing on that right now. And, uh, you know, once we're done with that, then we're going to probably, you know, start inviting people again. Okay, that's that's really fantastic. Um, and one question I had is that, you know, you describe this as a decentralized application on your Twitter profile, you've got Dr. Dow, uh, hashtag Dr. Dow. So I'm just curious as to how this is different uh, from, from a Dow proper, or I mean, is it a de decentralized application? Is there any meaningful difference between the two in your eyes? Well, so we don't have anything on chain quite yet. Okay. We raised a limited amount of capital and, um, you know, we have decentralized identifiers. So part of the onboarding process, you create a decentralized identifier. Um, and with that, we can create secure messaging protocols between different members. Um, and when it's integrated into a blockchain or into a distributed ledger, uh, once you are receiving credentials through the credential issuing system and hashing proof of those credential issue, issuance, uh, <laughs> events onto onto the distributed ledger, then, you know, the whole thing will be working. But for now, we have the base model, we have the front end, and then we have all of the systems that can plug into um, blockchains. Okay. And do you have a blockchain in mind? Where are you going to store all this? So this is the thing. Um, when I first started this project, there were only four um, did methods. And uh, there's uh, the method for how these decentralized identifiers communicate. They're, you know, these are the, the open standards protocols that are being developed. And <clears throat> each of these did methods use a different protocol. So some of them use blockchain, some of them don't. And there's actually some disagreement in the community about whether blockchain is even necessary. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and now that after we developed our mobile application, I woke up one day and there were 96 did methods. There oh, might wow. be today. <laughs> uh, and so there are many different blockchains have them, you know, uh, Tezos, Polygon, um, uh, Polkadot, uh, blockchain or Bitcoin has one, the Ion protocol. I'm missing a lot of them, but long story short, every chain is making its own did method. And um, we hope to integrate into all of them eventually. We want to be blockchain agnostic. We don't want to tether ourselves um, to any system. That's what decentralization, in my opinion, truly is. Um, it's choice, it's freedom, it's autonomy for the, for the person that's using the technology. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. And then walk me through the, the Halkion future where this is widely used and widely adopted. It's very popular and very well known. It's the default, let's say, what, what do you think uh, would be different then as opposed to now? So in the future, uh, once every physician has their decentralized identifier, whether it's through HPEC or any other system that's open standards-based, any other system that interoperates with these standards-based protocols, in the same way as email, you know, you have Yahoo, I have AOL, somebody else has Gmail, but we can all talk to each other. Why is that? Because there's protocols that allow for that. Even though the servers of Gmail and Yahoo and AOL are all still centralized, in a similar fashion through decentralized identity, we can communicate, but rather than a centralized system owning your information, you own your information. So in the future, we all have our decentralized identity wallet. I hope people decide to choose HPEC because we provide an amazing service and it's helping them, you know, practice freely and autonomously and give their patients the best care. Um, and so, for example, uh, if a company like Google, uh, who currently spends $187 million uh, administering their health care to their employees, that's about $14,000 per employee per year, doesn't include the co-pays, doesn't include the deductibles. Um, and they pay a buka. When I say buka, it's Blue Cross, Blue Shield, United Healthcare, Aetna Cigna, the big ones, the ones that we all know. They play, pay one of these companies to administer their healthcare. Many companies, large and small, are deciding to go um, and become self-funded, meaning rather than paying these guys who aren't really serving patients in many ways, who are obstructing care with prior authorizations, who aren't paying doctors for their services and are sending patients surprise bills and putting them into medical debt, which is the first cause, the leading cause of bankruptcy in this country. Rather than paying them, Google can choose to put, you know, buy catastrophic coverage for their employees or allow their employees to purchase a health sharing plan to cover for catastrophic illness. Um, and then they can put this capital into a decision engine that says, hey, as long as a doctor has these credentials, uh, for example, if they're an orthopedic surgeon, they have to have a medical license, they have to have a residency in orthopedic surgery. Um, and as long as they've never had a negligence malpractice claim in the last five years or whatever, whatever criteria Google as a company wants to choose, as long as this surgeon isn't charging more than $20,000 for a knee replacement, if one of my employees 
chooses that orthopedic surgeon and they perform that surgery, then we will pay them through this decision engine. So doctors can be paid immediately at the time of service. Mm -hmm. Patients can get their data immediately at the end of service and we can reduce the overall cost of healthcare because we're cutting out the middleman. And, um, you know, that's just one example of a workflow that could happen in the future when we all use systems like this. Do you think that it would in any way allow for greater price transparency? Because it strikes me that that is one of the biggest drivers of healthcare costs is the fact you don't know what something costs until you go in and get it and you're billed for it. And there's this whole labyrinthine, uh, you know, process that you are not privy to that you have no way of accessing or understanding that goes on after you receive care. And that just is a horrible, horrible way to revision a good or a service. So could you use this for doctors or, or physicians advertising their prices or making it clear what a, what a surgery would cost, itemizing it in some way? Could it help on that end as well? 100%. And, you know, regarding uh, price transparency, that comes from health systems and insurance companies and mm -hmm. these like pharmacy benefit managers who obfuscate the price of prescription drugs and drive up the cost of prescription drugs. You know, meanwhile, we have, you know, revolutionary independent physicians like direct primary care physicians who've said, you know what, screw that. We just want to take care of patients. We're only going to take care of patients. And you know what? We're going to actually negotiate directly with the, uh, with the pharmacy manufacturers. And we're going to get you guys your medications for pennies on the dollar. Uh, patients who go to DPC docs are often able to purchase their medications directly there. There's direct a uh, pharmacy right in office sometimes. Some states allow that. And so these guys are real renegades. You know, they're really um, changing things. And so, you know, we we as a company want to be able to allow people to scale that you know dpc is direct primary care or direct patient care for specialists but there are some specialists who want to be able to serve patients in that way but they really need the hospital systems too because they provide um you know higher level care that requires you know icu surgery etc you know there's it's going to be hard to be a brain surgeon that does cash only you know yeah <laughs> Right. I was going to ask you about DPC. Have you heard of uh, Josh Umber or Atlas MD or the uh, Surgery Center of Oklahoma, any of those people? Absolutely. I know them all. They're all my friends. We all, uh, all want to change healthcare together. I, I, I love that. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Umber and I have been corresponding for a number of years. When, when I, I heard him give an interview on direct, direct primary care, I couldn't believe that what he was saying was true. I'd never heard of the model. I'd never heard of the savings. I'd never grasped the enormity of the problem. And so we, we've been corresponding for years about what, what would be involved in franchising the model or scaling it up or integrating it with other services. So I'm really glad to know that uh, you're tapped into that community. Well, I want to I wanna actually say something about franchising the DPC model. The D in DPC stands for direct, meaning you and your doctor, period. Franchising the model implies there's an overarching business that those doctors then are either employed or maybe fractional ownership of that business or something. And that kind of takes the direct out of DPC. So it's kind of like false advertising, in my opinion. There's a lot of these companies that claim that they're DPC companies 
really they're employing a bunch of doctors and they're often private equity backed and all that kind of stuff. That's not direct primary care. It's not patient care. Yeah, I, there's there's a number of wrinkles. It's it's one of those things that seems kind of obvious on the surface, but when you dig into it, you've got to you got to handle it a certain way or it won't work. My interest was just in scaling it. It's just like, I mean, how could you how could you incentivize the opening of as many of these as possible? I had never heard of them, and it just seems like such an obviously superior way of doing it. And and changing healthcare in a way that doesn't require you to go to Washington and change the laws because that strikes me more and more as just a fool's errand. There's, there's almost no point. I mean, I'm glad there are lobbyists and people thinking about that stuff, but it's not me. And I, I don't see the point. I don't care. Right. So if you had, uh, let's say you, you, uh, increase the number of direct primary care clinics by a factor of a hundred, like that, that just seems like that would take such a huge bite out of the healthcare costs of thousands or millions of people that it's very much worth doing. I don't, I haven't thought that much about the actual model because I don't have a hundred grand to sink into anything right now, but it is something that I've been thinking about that he and I have, have talked about before. Well, in my opinion, the answer is decentralized networks of physicians that can connect securely, directly and private through, privately through their decentralized identity. And even though you didn't have a hundred thousand dollars, there were 400 physician investors who invested $780,000 to build this because they believe in it and they believe in in a future where physicians are free to practice uh, and, you know, keep their patient relationships private. Well, I believe in that future too. How, how does this stack up against a couple of other approaches to this? So it's actually not the first time we've had a conversation about data sovereignty or even data sovereignty specifically in healthcare. So we, we spoke with uh, Radhika Iyengar, who's doing a blockchain-based data sovereignty play. And we interviewed an economist, Irene Ng, who's the CEO of DataSwift. And they're not doing blockchain stuff, but it's a similar sort of idea. It's like, it's your data, you choose who gets to see it and under what circumstances. Have you given any thought to the competitor landscape? Do you not care because you just want to see something win? How do you think about that? So um, I have yet to see a competitor with what we're doing. So I guess I don't know either of the companies that you mentioned, but you say that they're talking about data sovereignty for patients? Yeah, I think that's how they wanted to start. They wanted to start from the other side and give patients a way of controlling their medical records and tracking them over time, keeping them safely and sharing them with doctors, but for limited windows. You know, not, it's not just, I hand you a file, you have it forever now. It's no, 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 you're my heart doctor. You get this for as long as I think you should have it. And then I can revoke access to it later, that kind of thing. So we didn't really, I, it never occurred to me to start with the physicians first. So I never thought to ask like, why start with the patients? But yeah, I think they're mostly starting with patients and then I guess doctors would, would come out of that on the other side somewhere. So I guess my question is, how does the patient get their data? Uh, presumably through a long and arduous process of, of getting it over time. I think, it's, I think it's one of these things where it's, it's pretty hard to go back and get your dental records from your small town dentist when you were 10 years old. But if you start where you're at now, you can kind of build that catalog over time and have greater control over it. And there's just not much you can do about what happened in the past, but going forward, you can have a better filing system that's secure and private and safe. Right. I mean, so, you know, again, I make the argument and maybe I'm like, you know, too deep down the rabbit hole, but the day you're born, the doctor that delivered you signs your birth certificate. That's your first piece of data about you, mm -hmm. your healthcare data. 
um, the day you die, the doctor signs your death certificate. So from cradle to grave, we as physicians, from the day you're born until the day you die, create your data. So in order for a patient to truly own their data from the moment that it's created, they have to have a secure direct connection to their doctor to receive that data. Otherwise, they're pulling it from data silos and data lakes that have been created by centralized systems. And, you know, I've seen many, many, many people who say that they want to, you know, give patients ownership of their data. I love it. I'm very grateful for the people out there who believe in that, who are building these tools. Um, but if there's no decentralized identity layer and there's no way for me to give that patient their data, uh, how is it decentralized and how are, how are they owning it? What is the process? What is the, what is the actual tech, you know, from a nitty gritty technology perspective, how are they actually getting it? Yeah, I don't have a compelling answer to that. Um, but th this has been a, a fascinating conversation. Is there anything that you want to leave the audience with anywhere you want to send them? Yeah, I mean, if you are a physician or patient that cares about this, please go to our website. That's hpec.io, hpec.io. Uh, fill out the form on the bottom. If you're a doctor, you can download the app today. Um, if you would like to follow us on social media, we are at hpecid, hpecid, and um, Leah Houston, MD. Well, thanks so much, Leah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.